For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Thank you for inviting me, and um, I'm always honored at being invited to speak to this group. Um, And so it gives me a chance to um, um, and so it gives me a chance to think about what I've been thinking about practice or um, what I. what it, what comes up for me, and um, I ended up picking up um, something that I had read a number of years ago. Uh, two different books by this author, Mark Epstein, who is a psychiatrist and he's also a Buddhist practitioner. Uh, he wrote the book "Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart," and he also wrote the book "Thoughts Without a Thinker." Um, And so I remember um, going to hear him speak with some other people from our sitting group when we were still at the cynical sitting. Uh, I know um, Asian went and Neozan, and I'm not sure who else. I don't think you were in that group. Yeah. Uh, But um, he is um, provocative, and I use this tonight, some of these, he's, uh, some of his ideas, and he's referring to some Buddhist teachings, but to ultimately lead to discussion among us um, about um, what we feel is um, the mechanism or is the um, way to practice. Um, And so you'll understand what I'm saying more in a few minutes. Um, I, uh, he, he talks uh, about surrendering our ideas of perfection and striving, uh, noting that Buddhism has made the self's ability to relax its boundaries, a centerpiece of its teachings. Uh, recognizing the central issue of our lives from falling in love to facing death require an ability to surrender and that that can often elude us. Um, it, uh, you know, I've just been in communication with a friend uh, who um, lives at a distant place who is telling me that her mother is having a very difficult time accepting the death of her husband who was quite old when he died, um, but um, that it's it's a huge struggle to let go and to feel she didn't do everything she could. Um, and I think that's very human, even when you know it's maybe at that time and, and, and you know it's coming. Um, and so... Um, how to how to surrender? How to let go? Um, uh, so 
Epstein uses this, this story. It's a Buddhist story of an eager Zen teacher coming to a Zen master for teachings. The Zen master offers him tea and the man accepts. Then the master pours the tea into the cup until it overflows. The student expresses his dismay. The Zen master says, a mind that is already full cannot take in anything new. Like this cup, you are full of opinions and preconceptions. In order to find happiness, you must first must first empty empty the cup, empty your cup. Um, and so, um, you know, this gets at the uh, some ideas about Western psychology. You know, that sometimes we have a sense of striving of, you know, I think of uh, parents I talk to now who have kids going off to college uh, in a year or so who are thinking, have they developed enough of uh, sports skill, enough academic skill, enough volunteering, enough uh, social skill, and, you know, that there's a striving you to do things to develop skills, to, um, you know, almost create this combination of uh, things in our personality. Um, and so uh, Buddhism teaches that happiness does not come from acquisitiveness, uh, but from letting go. Even when acquiring what seem to be worthy qualities, he referred to hearing the Dalai Lama speak and state that all beings are seeking happiness and feeling um, skeptical about that at first uh, until he heard the Dalai Lama, Lama say it multiple times and and realized it's true. Um, however, when we seek happiness through accumulation, either of goods or from our self-development, we're missing the essential point. Um, I'm going to read a, a story, a mustard seed story that I, many of you know, um, about, I'm not sure I'm going to say it correctly, Kisikatami. Saying that correctly? Uh, there's a well-known story in the Buddhist tradition, the story of Gesekatami and the mustard seed that illustrates how Buddhism uses the experience of emptiness to cultivate spiritual maturity. Like most good Buddhist stories, it can be understood on several levels. A young woman named Gesekatami lost her only child to illness around the time of his first birthday. Bereft, she went from house to house in her village, clasping the dead child to her breast and pleading for medicine to revive him. Her neighbors, thinking her mad, were frightened and did their best to avoid her entreaties. However, one man sought to help her by directing her to the Buddha, telling her that he had the medicine she was seeking. Gisakatami went to the Buddha as we go to our psychotherapist and begged for the medicine. I know of some, he promised, but I will need a handful of mustard seed from a house where no child, 
husband, parent, or servant has died. Making her rounds in the village, Gesikatami slowly came to realize that such a house was not to be found. Putting the body of her child down in the forest, she made her way back to where the Buddha was camped. Have you procured the handful of mustard seed, he asked. I have not, she replied. The people of the village told me the living are few, but the dead are many. You thought that you alone had lost a son, said the Buddha. The law of death is that among all living creatures, there is no permanence. Sometime later, when Gisikatami had become a renunciate and follower of the Buddha, she was standing on a hillside engaged in a task when she looked out toward the village in the distance and saw the lights in the houses shining. My state is like those lamps, she reflected, and the Buddha is said to have sent her a vision of himself at that moment, confirming her vision. All living beings resemble the flame of these lamps, he told her, one moment lighted, the next extinguished, those only who have arrived at nirvana are at rest. And so, um, you know, that's a, yeah, it's hard to follow up that story with anything. It, there's, it's so profound, you know, and in some ways I just would like to stop here and, uh, but we can come back to it. I am curious what it stirs up. Or do you want to break into it now and uh, if anybody has a reaction to that story and then I'll, I'll continue. I'll go on and we can come back if we want to. Uh, basically, um, he's proposing that we need to learn how to lose ourselves or go to pieces without disintegrating. Um, otherwise, if we don't ever learn this, um, we'll never be happy. And so it's, it's something about letting go, about uh, giving ourselves over, uh, over to grief, over to loss, um, as well as over to joy, over to surprise, uh, I would guess at times. Um, often we're afraid of falling apart, have not learned how to, how to give up that control. Because I'll probably forget it. <laughs> Some years ago, I remember being in a Dharma talk given by Zenju, Earthland Animal, and she said, if your heart isn't broken, if you don't feel pain, anger at some of the injustice and difficulty and oppression in the world, something's wrong. You know, this was in a Dharma hall full of, like, good Zen students, you know. But this invitation to feel the impact of the world so fully, 
She didn't say go crazy, you know, like he's a good time. Maybe you do need to go crazy and find a friend who helps you. You know, yesterday we, you know, grieved the loss of a Sangha member to suicide, which is pretty horrible. And still, we found a way to come together and support each other. So I guess I just think that invitation to feel fully what might look like falling apart is a kind of prajna. So that's sort of what came up for me as you were speaking. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Mark Epstein does a lot better job of unpacking that. But no, I, I, you said it beautifully. And I think there's something about allow that when we are able to go there, uh, we're able to push through and uh, those are raw feelings, but they allow more. Or they allow an awareness that is not just kind of holding things back. It's the only way I think of it. I, uh, um, so he talks about Buddhism has always made the self's ability to relax its boundaries the centerpiece of its teachings. The central issues of our lives, like falling in love to facing death, require an ability to, to surrender. Um, in Tibetan tradition, he says the closest comparison is falling in love, the experience of simultaneously forgetting and discovering oneself that occurs in falling in love. Thus, four levels of practice, looking, smiling, embracing, and orgasm. And I had to think about that. It's like, I thought, you know, looking is like, when people just get curious, you know, they begin to hear things about Buddhism, they're uh, intrigued, something about it speaks to them. Smiling is, I resonate with this, you know, recognizing that you resonate, you, this feels uh, useful. Uh, embracing is when you take it on in some way, uh, make it more, bring it closer and make it more part of your life. Orgasm, I would guess, is that you're, I don't know, uh, in it fully or recognizing the value of it to you, letting go completely. The joy of momentarily dropping the ego boundaries that prevent us from connecting with each other. So he feels accumulated wisdom from Buddhism and psychotherapy uh, is so that happiness depends on our ability to balance the need to do with our inherent capacity to be. I want to explore how we let go. But, but before I, I, I do that, I, I just, uh, you know, so one of the things that I, this led me to think about this was I traveled recently and um, something that struck me, I went to the Czech Republic for a week. Uh, and I, I was curious. I'd always wanted to go to a country that was behind the Iron Curtain, when because when I was a child, there were a number of countries, you know, that were um, kind of behind the Iron Curtain, and there was a sense of not having that much information about them, and realizing they were cut off from the world, and, and we were cut off from a whole very much information about them, and and so I've always been curious. So I, I enjoyed very much visiting Prague, and did a couple of. Tours one up out of 
of hiking where we, I noticed all of us had five hours with this tour guide who was very uh, educated and spoke English quite well. And, and then another tour in the city of uh, specifically about um, city in the country. And one of the things that um, stood out, a number of things, but um, the tour guide giving the history was describing how uh, Czechoslovakia has been under somebody else's rule a good deal of the last number of centuries. Uh, it, under, uh, you see, Catholicism, you know, when they tended more toward Lutheranism or Martin Luther, they were following in Catholicism kind of physically took over um, the Habsburgs family, Vienna or German were very much controlling them for years, the, then Nazism and, and then eventually communism. And so, you know, you historians, I, I just brushed through that very quickly. So I'm sure there are more details in there, but, um, but they are a country who have, you know, she described that uh, current population kind of feels like they have lost their control over themselves a number of times. And there's a, a certain, not defensiveness, but uh, determination now to hold on to their identity. And so uh, it's very, very difficult to become a citizen of the Czech Republic uh, very small percentage of people visas get passed. You have to have some connection routes in the area for that to happen. Um, and, and they're sensitive around things like they don't want too many tourists. They like having enough because they need the money, but they, they don't want too many because then there's so many tourists that they can't enjoy the normal things in summertime that they like to enjoy. And so, um, you know, she talked about when they were taken over by communism, the leader, the communist leader, they were first um, convinced that he was good for them and did not realize the direction he would ultimately take them. And so there's a guardedness. And, uh, and it made me, you know, I was thinking, so maybe countries respond in some ways the way people do, you know, that, that we okay, now we got to get control over the situation and there's a striving to do that. And I get it. It makes sense to me. Um, when I think of it, just, you know, like the parallels, I think of, you know, like a person who's maybe been in multiple relationships and all of those relationships were very controlling relationships, you know, that then you might uh, have uh, a response of uh, I'm going to make sure I don't, you know, I'm going to put my guards up. Or I'm going to, I'm going to be careful. I, I'm going to take some measures. I think those are examples of how we people become formed, you know, to try to um, take charge, um, control, manipulate, um, whatever you want to call it, in some ways, maybe there's some things that you do that make sense, and maybe sometimes we go overboard and become um, 
a little too controlling, withdrawn, or uh, not as available to what they're talking about, you know, that letting go. So, so, you know, some of the questions I think sometimes are how do we experience those things in life, come through them, and still get to a point that we can let go uh, within this practice or otherwise. Um, I, I think it raises sometimes for me, how do we look at our own practice? Um, we probably all have some way of thinking of observing our own practice, evaluating it in some ways in our mind. Um, either I've been diligent lately or I've done a lot of work at the Zendo lately or I've been a good Zen student lately or I've shown up for all my Zen responsibilities lately. And those, I think, are normal. Um, and I think it's also, there's like dynamics that play out within any group. There are group dynamics, you know, where you think, you compare yourself and think, okay, they're a really good Zen student, and I don't think I'm quite that good, or I'm not that good at all, or I wish I was like them, or, you know, those sorts of things are are some of what happened to we humans. And um, sometimes just to be aware that we're doing that, that we're having those thoughts. Uh, uh, and, and maybe rethinking, okay, if there's a gauge for how I want to be engaging in this practice, what's my gauge? You know, like uh, looking at what am I actually using and, and what do I want to be using? You know, maybe trying to set a certain number of days a week is important. Uh, and also uh, having other ways to kind of try to get a sense of am I understanding or is there, are there things outside my reach that I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that I uh, want more of? Um, uh, how to do it if we're not goal-directed or uh, do we need to be goal-directed? Uh, you know, one way to think about our practices is, is there a lightness about this practice or a heavy pressured feel um, or maybe both at different times and, and trying to sort out what that implies um, I um, personally struggle sometimes with um, the forms of the practice and the, I feel like there's a lot of rules in Zen. And that's just my own um, filter. And I think it's also helpful to have the form because I think we as a group can come together more easily when there's some form that we all agree on. And then if we're all doing everything differently all the time, there would not be any shared practice. Uh, but, but sometimes it feels like uh, there are rules uh, that it, that make it feel a little overwhelming. Uh, you know, like for me, the idea of, 
I admired that the group went to Tassajara, and I uh, was there once. For me, it's, and I've been to San Francisco Zen Center and to Green Gulch, and I value all of them. Um, but I also, there's kind of a reverence for, against okay, the real thing, or that's uh, a little daunting, or uh, I'm not, you know, kind of a sense of, okay, I'm not quite there yet, maybe we'll never be. Um, and I think it's important to pay attention to those kinds of measures that we're using uh, in our own minds uh, and uh, work to kind of own this practice ourselves uh, and and sort out what are the important parts of it for ourselves. Um, and so um, how do, how do we leave room for things like falling to pieces or losing control or um, deeply feeling loss or pain? Um, and um, moving through it rather than trying to control it. So, um, I know I'm throwing a lot out there, but I'm, I'm going to ask for some discussion and just, um, I'm curious what, what it stirs up for other people. Someone once said, hearts don't work until they're broken open. Oh, go ahead. I beg your pardon. Yeah. Uh, someone, someone once said, um, hearts don't work until they're broken open. So maybe that's uh, one of the upsides to falling apart. Yeah. yeah. Um, hearts don't work until they're broken open. Do you have a sense of um, why that is? Is that, is that a question for me? Yeah. Well, pain makes us sensitive. Yeah. Yeah, it makes us feel deeply. Another version of that quote was is from Leonard Cohen, who says, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So we have to lose our, let go of our sense of everything in place and being in control and to, to open up to uh, what to call it, reality, pain, joy, all of it. Thank you. Yeah. So the crack is uh, losing control. 
uh, experiencing uh, not not knowing the answer. Yeah, I'm thinking about the mustard seed story, and I've heard it before, but I think what I was um, I noticed this time hearing it was that um, how much Buddha met her where she was in that. Like he, like when she went to him, he didn't say like you're being delusional. You have to like let it go and just the kid's dead. Just accept it, you know. Um, that he was able to assess or, you know, make a best effort where she was mentally and try to say the thing that was going to be, you know, um, what, what was going what was appropriate for the moment that would help her kind of work through her grief rather than, you know, like talking down to her or something like that. Um, uh, so. And the letter to hold things that in some ways in the beginning go, yeah. if you get mustard seeds from all these poems, then, then I can help you. Yeah, which which I I'm, that part of all like it's interesting that he's like he's not exactly telling the truth. Uh, 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 you know, he's saying like, well, you know, I'll I'll save your kid if you can do this thing, and she earnestly goes out to try and do that thing, um, which you know is is a little. I don't know how to feel about that, <laughs> but I guess we could. Yeah, that's that's meeting meeting her where she needed to be. I guess I don't I don't know how what kind of stage she was in. He he gave her something to do as well, so she wasn't just stuck in her funk. Yeah, mm-hmm. true. Yeah, right. He gave her an assignment and um, uh, to confront that delusion all at once might have been way too much. Yeah. Uh, but to go through this process and come to the realization herself. Right. Allowed it to sink in more slowly. Yeah. Also connected her to other people. Yeah. Like, oh, you've suffered this too. You've suffered grief too. You've suffered loss too. Oh, you know, so it gets you out of this ego involvement to a, a spacious kind of connectedness and a commonality, a communality, mm. which is, and it's experiential. So it's like Sangha. So all of a sudden everybody became her Sangha mm-hmm. in sadness. Yeah. And she took it on. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And it feels so that there was also an openness from the, from the part of the moment to surrender at that point because it takes two. The Buddha offers that but if somebody's really determined to be crazy or not really to see okay. that, they'll just keep going and like, well, those mustard seeds were not true. Like, you know, it's just like, go around it, but it, 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 got, it, it met her and she, and she met the Buddha also. Yeah. In accepting that reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, um, metaphor of the lights up on the hill I thought was really interesting. So the memorial service that we just had was for my aunt who passed away last week. Uh, my mom's younger sister and she was in her mid-60s. Um, so sorry. Yeah, I'm going to miss her quite a bit. Um, 
Mike and I had been gone for three weeks just out of town. When we got back, we found that the fireflies could hatch. And our backyard is full of them. Um, and you can see them when they're, when they're lit up. But you can't see them when they're not lit up. But they're still there. Fine around. The thing you, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Sophia. Um, I was thinking, well, Tegan had just said that the line about there's a crack and everything, and it had been what stuck in my mind as you were talking so much was the going to pieces without falling apart, and this kind of yeah, this tension between like total disintegration and like the loosening of the boundaries of the self. Um, and I was doing some research for this thing for I'm working on my internship and it was about this art this artist who she likes to she makes all these like ceramic vases that mimic this like style from the 12th century in Korea these porcelain vases and that in in that tradition the legend has it that like the masters would you know break anyone that wasn't totally perfect um and so her approach to it was to um to make these herself and then purposely break them and then put them back together in strange arrangements and like, and yeah, break them all to pieces. And then, and the way she talked about it was like, you know, she never, at first when she started to have her practice, she was like, Oh, I'll go for this shape and I'll try to make this particular shape. Um, And then she quickly realized that that was not the right way to go about it. And she had to just like be with the, be with, present with each piece um and that like trusting that by being present with each piece she'll find like what this what it wants to be um so anyway just everybody all these different comments is making me think about that thank you that's that's not working <laughs> I was going to say, Dylan, you're, you're coming about, you don't know how you feel about the tactic that uh, Buddha used, you know, kind of misleading her. I was thinking, but Zen does some daring things, mm-hmm. you know, that there's more than one. They, they don't stay with any rules. There's, you know, there's just a lot of sometimes out there kinds of yeah. methods. I think um, sometimes about um, when does when do I feel more enlivened? You know, like when I'm or I guess, and not a matter of when does it feel good, when does it not feel good. It's sometimes that you have insights in practice and sometimes you don't. And um, 
I think sometimes just focusing on my, when I can come back to my breath and focusing on my breath, recognizing uh, that we only have so many breaths in a lifetime. There's a limited number of breaths and that, and, and reconnecting with your breath, it's like you're reconnecting with how you're really feeling, you know, as well as um, your present, you're being present in the moment, you know, and the limited time or the, you know, the ephemeral part of which it can be calming. Cats seem to have it down on this. <laughs> they are completely real. I was also thinking, Sophia, when you were talking about that example, um, I play around with watercolor and I do it with friends. Uh, and so we'll show each other what we're trying to paint and then we'll show each other what we did. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes we're, uh, uh, it's like, okay, that would be okay. There's no way I can capture all of this. I'm going to try for that. Or uh, I got the wrong color on this. I'm going to redo the color. Uh, uh, but it's like you that as you are trying to do a reproduction of something you're looking at, you have to limit what you're trying to capture. You can't, there's no way to capture it all. It's not going to look like real. And so you have to sort of how to represent it. And it's how you see it. It's also how the colors you see and the part that seems more important to you. Mm. Any other thoughts about, uh, I don't know, our practice together in terms of what are the most valuable parts of it? Sangha is nice because it reminds me that I'm not crazy. <laughs> like there's a, there's a bunch of other people in the room with me right now doing the same thing. And we all think that it's a good thing to be doing and spending our time. Because uh, you go out in the world and other people don't think this way. <laughs> get lots of weird looks. Um, when I talk about this practice, so it's, it's nice to come here and be reminded that this is, in fact, a, a same thing to be doing with my life. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. 
even when I text and tell some people where I was going tonight, you know, there's some people in my family who just don't respond. <laughs> they don't know what to do with it, so they just, okay. <laughs> so you just pulled us up, Chris. Practice was a shared delusion. No. Okay. I do. Well, we are but I forgot. Well, you do is a shared delusion, but it can spread. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, think about time. If there's a final comment that someone would like to offer. Any any other comments or any other? What, yeah, a child's point of view might be useful. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's fine. All right. Thank you for listening and for being part of the group that allowed me to talk to a group. <laughs> and allowing me to do this.